Hey friends, welcome to Field Pod. Today we're sitting down with Maria Luisa in anticipation of her book launch, which will happen at Field Projects this Wednesday, October 12th. She will be unveiling her book of secrets, Secreto. I hope to see you there and enjoy this amazing conversation with Maria Luisa and Field Projects. Hey. Hey. Thanks for being with us and chatting with us today. I'm really excited. Okay. First of all, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited also. My name is Maria Luisa Portuondo. I'm a Chilean artist and I've been here in New York, well, back and forth for the past 10 years, but I decided to just, you know, stay two years ago. And I think it was two years ago that I did this art residency field projects. Summer 2020. One, right? 2020. Okay. One year ago. And, but I was the first resident. Yes. Yes, our first. <laughs> <I was> owner. <laughs> and it was summer, I remember. And I did this, you know, like very tedious job. Do you remember? Of the little, little, little uh, printing. It was beautiful because after that, I mean, it was beautiful because as you know, well, my work is more about uh, citizen participation. I My background is theater. I studied theater first and then I studied stage direction. And yeah, and when I finished that, I decided that I just wanted to work on the street and work with people, you know. For me, this thing about theater, mostly in Chile, but all around, that was just a bit of, you know, like narrow audience and it's very related with entertaining right it wasn't really for me and i wanted to work with people and i wanted to work in public spaces and i started to do this you know like art installation projects and uh, yeah and when the pandemic hit i was in chile and i realized that I was not going to be able to do this for a long time. And I developed this project, Avidar, which was the first phase. And then I developed the second phase of the project in Field's project, right? That's right. And that's probably why you were thinking it was a two-year long like that we did the residency two years ago, because Habitar started two years ago. And that was during the um like the forced closure of Chile, right? During the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And in Chile, this was very strict, right? Like, we were not allowed to go out, you know, like, at all. We had just these two days, two no, two times permission for two hours per week. You know, we were not, in one moment, we were not even allowed to walk our dogs, you know, which was crazy. <laughs> so it was like, oh, my God, what? What am I gonna do? And I had to do an art residency here in New York in that time in Al Worlds. And I said, you know, like I just can't do it. And then I realized that I was having this deep, profound conversation with my friends through audio messages, right? On a WhatsApp. And I found that that material was very interesting, you know, it was like a very pure humanistic material talking about what we were struggling struggling with mm-hmm. during this time mm-hmm. and i decided to direct that you know to a more specific space and i asked like 20 friends of mine how they had experienced time during these days you know those days 
and my friends, and I asked them, just send me a, an audio, right? And they sent me an audio and I said, okay, this is great. You know, I just can't create these collective narratives by editing all of this together and creating a new piece regarding some specific topic. And I mean, I had never edited nothing at that time, you know, like, so I just download this uh, garage band and I started working with that. I'm mm-hmm. horrible with computers. I thought it was going to be impossible <laughs> for me to do it, but I could, you know? And it was so fun because editing audio is like writing, right? It's like you can write, you can compose. And that was like uh, a new tool for me. Yeah. And that was when it started. And then I just direct that call, you know, in specific ways, asking people around the world that I had met, you know, do, uh, making Secreto, the project that we are going to talk later. And I asked them to tell me their experiences about different topics as motherhood, fatherhood, you know, like sex, sexuality, family. I was curious about how you kind of came to those topics. And I think it's probably like more of this gradual process through like doing the interviews and listening to people. But during Habitar, you had kind of a couple of different categories. And then inside of field projects during the second iteration of this, there were single words that you were printing too. So can you talk a little bit about how you got to both of those things, both the single word and also the categories? Yeah, the categories, I think it was because I was listening in general, my friends struggling with the same things, right? It's like all of my friends who were parents, they were struggling with that, you know, like motherhood and and fatherhood was an issue during pandemic, you know? So this both had to be there. Also sex, it was like, you know, a topic that my friends were talking about, you know, like, hey, you know, like all day, the whole day with this guy, I'm working with this guy, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm done with this guy. So I think, well, and morning, you know, it was the last one. I made one with kids also and then childhood because kids were totally affected by this too, right? It was like they were not able to go to school. So all this socializing, it was, you know, impossible for them, which is crazy. So the categories were mostly, you know, I chose them because I thought it was the most important topics that we were struggling with during that time. And then when I started this residency in field projects, you guys invited me with this title of Hunted Summer, right? There was a, yeah, there was a, a show. Uh, it was a, it was a, a show. show called Haunted Summer. Yeah. yeah. And it was. Yeah. And it was a little bit of how, how we're going to overcome from pandemic, right? How now that we are open again, we're going to do this because it's a, it's a trauma, right? And we're going to have to overcome a trauma together. I said, okay, I think, I think Avitar is about this, right? I did this because I want, I did Avitar guys, because I wanted to have an archive of how we had feel during that time to remember that, you know, because I think human beings, we don't remember our trauma sometimes. And that's why it's so difficult to grow. Right. So as a society, we were going through these difficult times and I wanted to record that in order to remember all these, you know, 10 years later. Yes. There's this kind of impetus to create time capsules during that time, right? Like, I think, you know, Jacob and I started this thing that we called Corona Care. And it was just like asking artists to talk about their time in the studio during the pandemic and like how they were affected by it. 
And I think that what you were doing is just such a smart and interesting way of collecting and then also like narrativizing and then boiling down all of those feelings into these like one word responses that were really moving. So Mm -hmm. I feel like it actually, I had never thought about it as coming out of knowing about Haunted Summer, but there is something really ghostly, right, about about the experiences of the pandemic. Yeah, and also this ghosting thing that you, you mentioned are all these thoughts, right, that are basically what I collected in Avitar and then what I grow down in these little pieces of paper come in the microscope slides that is the installation that I created in field projects, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, now I, I want to turn all these thoughts and feelings and memories, you know, mental verbalizing that I have in audio records into a object that we can read and we can see and we can touch. So basically what I did was writing down all the script of the seven capsules Mm -hmm. and then take the most interesting words and writing down in these stamps, I basically stamp letter by letter in these small pieces, right? Yeah. Words. What yeah. kind of stamp was it? Do you remember? Like, cause I re- it's such a specific object. Yeah, it's a specific object. And you, do you guys remember that this more, you, you have to manufacture this, it was letter mm-hmm. by letter, put it in the, in the stamp, you know, like you create basically the word mm-hmm. and then you stamp it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what you have is just one letter and you have to put all the letters together and then you create the stamp. It's like oh. the old, old printed printing process. Movable type. Yes. Whatever. Thank you. And also here, here we can go through something very interesting for me, which is the time, you know, like the time that you, I wanted to experience that during my residency, right? It's a commitment with my, my participants spending that crazy amount of time making an object with their thoughts, right? Because this sensation of time, it was very important during pandemic, right? During pandemic, we experienced another sensation of time. We had more time, you know? We were collapsed also with this crazy amount of time that we we were having. This stamping thing, it was a crazy, crazy job in sense of time. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it was super, it was like a months a month-long durational <laughs> performance basically yeah yeah basically i was in field projects at least five six hours per day stamping and i did one thousand it was one thousand it's not too much if you see <laughs> but it you know it's like and they were all different right like now maybe when people listen to us they are not going to fully understand what we are talking about but then can show i mean see that in your web page or in your instagram right and see exactly what we are talking about because it's a very (laughs) tedious but i'm not gonna say this word in english meticulous like work (laughs) yeah can you tell us what the there was like seven categories right yeah for that project what are the what were the seven categories were time motherhood fatherhood sexuality childhood which is, is called kids because Mm-hmm. kids talk and mm-hmm. that's be- that's a beautiful one i really recommend it is english is you know english and spanish but the, the kids are amazing because they they start comparing you know like pandemic with black lives matter right and police because mm-hmm. they were they were seeing both things at the same time right 
Mm. And then morning, the morning one is also very beautiful because I interviewed just one person in the other ones. I don't know, I have more than 300 people, you know, like talking mm-hmm. in those uh, capsules, right? But in the last one, which is morning, I just interviewed one person, which is a Mexican girl who lived here. And she talks about how difficult was it was for her because she lost her, her husband. But also she says something very meaningful, which is like, I'm poor. And here in the United States, you know, poor people were the ones who had to die, you know. So she, she made all this social, you know, like claim. At the same time, she's telling very yeah, specific issues and um, specific uh, features of how it's dying for COVID, you know. Yeah. Yeah, what it means for her, but then her in that class and in this place, the larger picture. Exactly. And she's Mexican, so also how being Mexican is in the United States, right? Or in New York, in, the, in her case. Yeah. She says, in one moment, she says something like, like, we had to go out, you know, like we had to, the, the Mexicans were the, the ones who died more because, you know, like the delivery had to be done, right? Mm, yes, yeah. Yeah, because of the marginalization and the class implications too, it's like, service industry jobs which are like the backbone of keeping things going in the united states were the one of the most at-risk jobs that people had yeah yeah exactly well and then we turned all of that into a book that was the end of the residency such a cool object book oh my gosh (laughs) yeah well we have to we have to explain that too because it's not a conventional book right you don't make conventional books. You make art. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a wooden box with forty or twenty microscope slides inside. Yeah, and it's beautiful, guys, because now the books is in these collections in the I don't know like a Stanford in the universities in a mm-hmm. new school, you know. So this is what is important because when I said at the beginning, like I wanted this to be. Our archive of our thoughts to be remembered, you know, in 10 years later, when these books reach those collections, is, you know, like where it has to be in order to conservation of the archive, right? It's also in not necessarily public library, but it's in a place where people are are studying about the past and are able to use this as a reference. Exactly. In SUNY, for example, they they also acquired it and they invited me to talk about the book. And then I said, okay, I'm just going to invite the the students to choose what they wanted to put inside of the book, right? What slides they wanted. So I invited them to choose the one that they felt more related to. Uh You know, so it's a kind of um, group edition of the book, right? Yeah. You don't do that with every edition of the book, do you? No. Okay. No. That was just a special it, one. It was, it was my, it, it is what I wanted. And then I thought if I exhibit this again, maybe I'm going to do that. But it's kind of tricky, you know, because then you have to dismount the exhibition. I don't know if I like that, you know? Right. Uh, to have the gaps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think that the book is such a. It's such a like brilliantly like defiant object too because it, it it's sort of like a, a a rejection of making a book that's just paper, right? 
you're sort of taking a format that's traditionally associated with like documentation and history and flipping it on its head and not using the kind of dominant mode of making to make this book. And I really like that. I think it's both defiant and I think it's also a very like feminist act to make a book that's these slides. They still mm -hmm. have paper, but the paper's like contained and not touchable. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's something really uh, exciting about that, that I think is a great direction like going forward. And I really appreciate that you did the project at Field Projects. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a great invitation. And actually, I think, I mean, I needed that space and that time to reflect on it and do this end part of mm -hmm. the, you know? Can we, let's quickly talk about how that happened, because this is one of the, also the great things maybe about you, Maria Luisa, is that you're a very warm, friendly person who's wants to go and talk to anybody who wants to be able to um it is not in a sense confined to your role so my upstairs neighbors had have it was she five or four at the time and anais yeah <laughs> they they somehow came across you and hired you to watch anais and speak spanish to her right yeah and so my daughter plays with anais and so i met you um, through that yeah and then I think we were hanging out with the kids and I was just like oh what do you do on the side and you're like oh I'm also an artist you know and I was like oh we like Chris and I run run a gallery and it was and also you know Anais's parents are artists too so mm -hmm. you know it kind of makes sense but yeah yeah and, and then, then it's like we're thinking of starting a residency <laughs> yeah yeah it was like well we our longtime tenant left that space and we decided to turn it into a residency it was like literally i think i was like oh it's gonna start like in a week or something do you want to do it <laughs> you know? yeah no because also i remember there was like oh but you know i think the application is already closed yeah well we had chosen it, it was too soon to choose somebody for that that slot exactly and so just like me meeting you i was like hey we have this slot do you want to take this slot because it's it's basically open space that nobody's you know that we don't have anybody for and you were like yeah i have this idea for this project that i want to work on and and i was like this is awesome this sounds exactly like the stuff that we love and i mean i think it was within a matter of days i love i i want to say that i love your point now that uh, jacob because you know maybe this podcast must be listened for young artists people artists that are not from here they are coming from latin america as me you know different country countries you know and they are struggling with what means to try to be an artist in new york city right yeah. and sometimes we tend to think that if we apply this if we apply that if we do things in the normal way we're gonna get it you know and then you get totally frustrated because sometimes we're not counting on magic, right? On on destiny, right? And for me, New York always has been like that, you know? It's like, I've met people who have drawn me to do this or that thing, you know? I dared to try just, I don't know, my first work, it was in the subway, you know? Mm -hmm. I had no place where to exhibit and I decided to just do something in the subway because I wanted uh, do something in the subway and suddenly I had the CNN trying to read me, you know? So, you know what I mean? It's like, I love to say here that 
Of course, it's difficult to be an artist in New York City. Of course, there are so many possibilities open, but it's difficult to get them because there are so many artists. But there is a side, there is a there is a other world, which is the destiny and the universe helping you in some way, you know, and mm-hmm. we have to count on, the, mm-hmm. on that. But, I mean, I think a huge part of that is that you recognize those magic moments, right? That you you are able to, like, take a hold of them and do something. Like, even talking about the subway, you were like, this is a space where I can intervene (laughs) in New York, you know? Like, where is there a high-traffic area where I can do a project? The subway. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's both that there's kind of magical opportunities but you also have to be like looking for them and not expecting yeah. that to just not ever happen, right? And then yeah. you have to see that moment and take it and do something with it too, which I think you've done consistently, just like yeah. with Jacob, you know, <laughs> and Anis and Ramona. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, I wanted to, yeah, highlight that because, I mean, you're kind of saying it's magic, but I think it's also has to do with being open and being able to be sort of vulnerable and and be like, oh, I'm an artist, I'm here in New York, I'm doing these projects because I love these projects, I'm interested in these projects, these, these seem important to me. This kind of work is not the kind of work that is going to be shown at David's Warner. This is not the kind of work that is going to be super you know, even though you said CNN was interested in you, it's, it's, it's not super flashy. It's like about vulnerability. It's about community. It's about connecting across cultural lines. It's all of these things that Anton Kern doesn't give a fuck about, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And, and, and that's tricky here because, you know, like there are so many artists that are into these type of topics and sometimes they re- betray themselves because they need or they think the only possible way is the institution, right? Which is great. I mean, we have to work with the institution, right? It's like, it's a fact. I mean, it's bad, but it's not the only option. And maybe this is also a very Latin thing, as we are survivors in some way, right? We need to do art with nothing if it's if you want to make art, you know, yeah. until you have one grant, one. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. If you don't get that one, you are fucked, you know, <laughs> for the whole year. Then you have to wait, you know, to apply again next year. So yeah. if you don't learn how to do it without money, and I think, uh, Chris, you were pointing out this uh, beautiful thing that you said about Avatar, the book, and I think it's right. It's like this decision of making, I want to make a book. I don't have publishers. I don't have, you know, like yeah. money for paper. I don't, I'm just going to do it what I have, you know? But also that needs to inhabit a known vulnerability, you know what I mean? Like dwell yeah these things that sometimes neoliberalism doesn't allow us right yes the unknown the experimentation the vulnerability and i also want to i want to plug that i think the institutions should be the place that finds homes for difficult artwork i think there's a lot of people in the institutions that are on board for this and that are interested in this i think there's a marketplace that we talk about like with the whatever Gagosian's blue chip kind of stuff 
that uh, is about selling. But I think the institutions like the Met, like the, you know, all of these things set out to be that sort of good institution. It doesn't necessarily mean they succeed at it. But I, yeah. I do want to believe that, that there are, you know, and people do own, I mean, institutions do own your work because of these reasons. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I'm usually the anti-institution mm-hmm. person one, and then Chris comes in with the, like, reasonable ideas about it. I just oh. wanted to flip that. <laughs> <laughs> flip the script over. But it's also true, like, I feel like you're making institutions chase you instead of seeking them out. And I think that's something really valuable about the way that you operate. It's not that you wouldn't work with an institution, but it's more that you know that you have to work without needing them, as you're just saying. Um, And that makes your work, I think, really exciting, especially to the kind of curators, collectors, academics who are interested in exactly what Jacob was just saying, which is usually my script that I say, (laughs) which is just, you know, that I think that people do want to work with art that is community oriented, that isn't in a traditional format, you know, and maybe that's a good place to kind of ask you, how did you even get into making community practice-based work like you are. Yeah, how you went from sort of theater to... I think a big part that, you know, like my father was a sociologist. He had to leave the country when Pinochet took the power. So he could come back to Chile in 1989 when the dictatorship finished and we turned into this kind of democracy. So I was six at that time and I got very close to my father at that time because I miss him so much and he always went through this typical thing that like he was not a communist but he was more social right. you know like culture you know it needs to be for a large people like uh, uh, need more social uh, social justice we need to education for everyone you know and all the things and this was always in the back of my head right so at the same time from my mother's side i belong to a family that is very traditional and very you know like I was studying in this fancy university, you know, and then I was doing this kind of theater for the elite. And it was one day I was like, okay, something is not working here for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to rehearsal for three months to make a play of theater that is going to be seen for 30 rich or middle rich class people. Right. You know? Right. So the question of audience. In Chile. Is, yeah. Where, yeah. Where the inequality, it's crazy where people really need to experience art where people really need to get close to culture no way no Mm -hmm. way my father passed when i was 20 years old i have a death also with his memory in some way you know and i said i'm not gonna do this i'm just gonna go to street you know i'm gonna go to street and i'm gonna do whatever on the street and i'm gonna get close to people on the street but i have no tools for doing art installations i I didn't study visual arts you know right so I started doing this uh, project called Things That I Like To Do Just Because, which were basically, you know, like origami <laughs> things and then patchwork racks, you know, mm-hmm. where I invited people to sing different things on street. The title was because I really didn't know what to do. And in the in the university, everything has to be you know, like full of explanation and the conceptualization. I said, I don't know. I just want to do this, you know. And it was crazy because in Chile, people were not. And I think this is not just in Chile. If you see it here, 
I lived also in Barcelona. I was living for a while in, in, in London. What we call public art, right, like street art, mm -hmm. is not normally projects of citizen participation, you know? Yes. It's more it's more orientated to graffiti, you know, and things that you contemplate. But when you invited people to participate, something extraordinary happens. Because this experience of creativity, this experience of being able to create something in communion with other people is very moving. Yeah, and I started and I realized that people wanted that, you know, then I was working for different people that were calling me and they wanted yes. to make, you know, like exhibition uh, uh, projects on the street, mostly, you know, companies like uh, Converse, these things. And I started doing that and that's how it started. But it was when I, I don't know, like after three years that I understood exactly what I wanted to do with these experiences, you know, which is archives. Mm -hmm. And thinking about this from my perspective, which is like the capitalistic United States, I immediately with your first project, Just Because, thought about how much people are pushed, especially artists, to commercialize everything they do. And I feel like this is also such a rejection of that in, in so many ways, just even like right at the outset, right? Just going and like making origami, the things that you do just because. And not yeah. trying to necessarily like have that as a commercialized thing, but to have that as a shared community experience, I think, again, is another like rejection of many different kinds of institutions and formats of making that are, I think, across the world an issue, but in very different ways, right? So in the United States, the push for, we might talk about it as like commercializing your hobbies, you know, like selling the embroidery you started doing during COVID. And this is like such a rejection of that. And I think that that is also really valuable and goes back again to the questions about time and commercialization that we kind of started with talking about. Labor and what labor, labor is. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what it means to you, the value of your time to yourself and to your community in opposition to the value of your time to an employer or the whatever, the, the, the system state. That, Right. <laughs> like taking this out of being productive for the state and making it productive for your community, Jacob, I think that's like really hitting on exactly what I was trying to articulate and was struggling to say, which is it feels like you've decided to care about your community and to do projects oriented toward many different communities, because that is in a way just such a rejection of the way that capitalism forces people to constantly be in competition and to lose community. That's Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also, I have to say this, sometimes, and this maybe is going to sound a bit hard, but sometimes I just can't get along with humanity, you know? I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Wait, wait, what do, you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> sometimes I hate, I hate humanity. You know, you know, <laughs> we are going all around, you know, it's like, okay, we had our opportunity, we lost it, whatever, let's leave animals and nature leave <laughs> the world and we just should disappear, you know, we can't just do it. But in this community project, in these pieces of art is when I feel very close to humanity and it's my yeah. way to 
fixed to heal from that sensation that I don't like, you know, because at the end of the day, I love humanity. You know, at the end of the day, all my work is about social aspects and how we communicate, how to dialogue, how to create awareness and reflect because reflection is, we have lost that also because of neoliberalism, what you are talking with, yeah. right? Like the, the time for reflect is every day less because reflecting is not related to money. And actually what you are saying makes, because now I'm, I'm experimenting in theater again. I'm doing an art residency. We are six different directors. And it's kind of crazy because I have not done theater for 10 years, you know, and I run away from theater from some reason. And yesterday I was seeing the different exercises uh, people were showing. And there is something about theater. It's not just one opinion. I don't know really. This is a thought that I have, it's a sensation that I have about theater here, which is that this, you know, like Broadway inherent, like what the Broadway you know, context has created, is that when I laugh and when I, what I saw is just results, right? Yes. They, give, they gave us a sentence and what I saw, it was just results, you know, like people acting and doing, mm-hmm. I sing. Not the of, process. Not the process. Mm-hmm. No an experimentation, you know? And this is again what we were that you are pointing out, and I, across through this concept of zombie, uh, what formalism? Formalism, yep. Yeah, uh, my friend Joseph talked uh, told me about that, and was like, okay, this I don't know what it means, but this makes sense to me in this context. The formalism is because we need to get a result to show mm-hmm. and sell, mm-hmm. right? Yes, products, 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 the whole products. time. Yeah, exactly. But but it doesn't make any sense at the end of the day because if I have a, a sentence which is, do you believe in God? No, for example, you know, and you make me make, I sing with that and I ask the actors in 10 minutes to know how to say that, in what way, you know, and feel about it, this is, this is fake. <laughs> any person in 10 minutes can find a good, you know, reason to say something like, do you believe in God? No. So we need to allow the actors experiment to find that in themselves. But that costs money, of course. Yeah, it's time. Hmm. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. 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 And I also appreciate you saying I'm not this like... (laughs) only humanity positive forward as if you never have the like you know like dark whatever like eco nihilism that we're all feeling about like the way the earth is fucking going insane because of climate change right so (laughs) i also appreciate that you're kind of being open about that the same way that jacob was also saying like you are such an open person and that's part of your process you're receptive but it's a sort of like discerning receptivity. And I think what you're talking about too is still really different from what we might think of as like traditional improv theater. You know, like it's not the same thing because that's like a yes ending and there isn't the long thought process there in that. I have no idea what this is gonna look like, but I'm really excited about it. It sounds like, so, so when are you premiering this? Or is it just kind of in the works? In December, I have to show something. But yesterday, I got scared, you know, because, yeah. I mean, it's a lab. And they said, okay, this is a space for experiment, mm-hmm. experimentation. But then it's, it was like, okay, maybe I just have to make something, you know? Yes, like, yes. Yes. This scares me, you know, because I don't know. And, and at the end of the day, 
I'm more a visual artist than a, a, a director of play of theater in the, mm -hmm. in the traditional way. I can't do traditional things, you know, like this is not my, my take, you know, it's like, I'm not going to have two actors sit with the, the wall, you know, we, got, we, got, we call it the fourth wall, which is like people Blocking. sat there, actors sit mm -hmm. here, you contemplate what they are doing. I don't, I don't like that shit. You know, I'm sorry, my, my language. <laughs> it's okay. I'm more dem more democrat in my, my way to make yeah. art. You know, like I want to do it together. And my exercise with with all the audience participating in the thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's so hard to do that effectively because the fourth wall works both ways, and the people who come believing they're spectators. Like, how do you break them out of the passive spectator role? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's something, too, that's really difficult. It's difficult if you don't, you know, like, just renounce to all the principles that theater stands and has stand for centuries, you know? Because there are so many, you know, like, directors as Mayor Hall, and I can't, you know, like, Eugenio Barba, like, different ones that try different things, and they did. But, for example, you can't have people for one hour and a half or one hour, you know, like, doing something in theater but maybe if the exercise takes some theater elements but it's more a performance frame of time mm -hmm. it can be different you know but yeah but it's a question that also i have and i want to develop an answer through this three-month residence so can you say where this is again the place in december where you're showing mercury store it's an amazing place in brooklyn they started, I think, two years ago. And it's like, it's crazy because they, you know, like have this uh, call where mm -hmm. people are, you know, like uh, going there to six directors in this case to experiment. Mm -hmm. That cool. is really cool. It's just a place yeah. I didn't really know anything about. So I'm excited to find out more about it. Had you heard of this, Jacob? No, no. Yeah. I'm also, I'm not part of the theater world. It's very theater. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'm interested. I've just, yes, I've just not stepped into that world. Like, I'm like, maybe I'll go see an off Broadway something, and like, yeah, never have. I've been here for like whatever it's been, thirteen years or something. <laughs> yeah, but it's very theater field. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you've gone to stand up comedy that counts as off Broadway. That's not, it, that's in its own kind of space. But actually, that does make me think about, you know, the label of what you call it matters, right? So for the audience. So like, if you're calling it theater, there's that spectator expectation. But I wonder if event or performance or the way that it's phrased. I know, but happening. we don't want to use happening. Maybe we want to use happening. I don't know. Super old school happening, but yeah, happening too. I used to call I used to call my species a scenic installation, right? Which oh, is like I love that. Mm -hmm. Scenic. It's just the the scenic has a lot to so give much. to visual art, mm -hmm. you know. So I want to experiment on that, and mm -hmm. also like. I felt like I was not fulfilling maybe the group expectations yesterday, but this is my sensitivity sensibility also, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. Maybe no one's felt like that. But then when I saw that everyone has real scene made with context and I know narrative, you know, I never worked with narrative in theater too. You know, it's difficult, I know. And I was dealing with my master degree thesis for two years because the you know, my the director of the career was like, No, you have to to do a place of theater. My thesis is all about doing, you know, visual scripts, no play of theater. 
And he was like, no, you have to do a play of theater. You know what I mean? It was very traditional. Of theater means narrative. <laughs> Don't you know that you're getting like a master's? Dialogue, <laughs> actors, you know, like uh. audience, you know, like people on the stage. It was like, okay. Yeah. Again, the universities as an institution is a whole other monster um, that we haven't gotten into. But that is a real thing that shapes you and how you think. And then you get out of that and you're not forced to do those things anymore. But there's still a lot of expectations around them, right? Um, and I think it's hard to get yourself mentally out of that, thinking like, oh, everyone has these expectations for me. I mean, I feel that way. It's hard to get out of that mindset of like, you know, like, what are the expectations? Too hard. And also how you deal with those expectations and your autonomy, like creative autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. Like your artistic autonomy. Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> Jacob is showing us a drawing he made. I don't <laughs> why. <laughs> My business coach slash therapist. <laughs> Please do and God. I made drawing about um, admitted on the podcast. Yes, admitted on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, about characters in your mind, and so this is like me as a little kid, uh, skeleton boy, <laughs> and then this is another version of me, which is a giant middle finger with some cute legs and they're they're sort of holding hands but that is <laughs> that is the way that i uh i personally deal with all of these things yeah chris is trying to catch your breath <laughs> i love it thanks for that because you know like this is formalism and you know like sometimes we get stuck i mean i get stuck there you know and also because it's this relationship with ac ac academia right like academy who cares you know but at the same time i care so i'm dealing <laughs> autonomy understanding of art totally and the one that is the academic understanding of art dealing the boss there and telling me you are not doing well you know you are not <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and i think that the good place to be is like um or for me i should say the good place to be is is that i instantly feel an allergy i feel allergic to any type of like boxing in of rules and stuff like that and then the, this drawing is like the first one is like fuck you and fuck all your rules and then the second drawing is like okay like but what are the interesting things about like what is the gift within those rules and how do those rules come about and i'm sure they came from a place that that's like us that's like okay so what happens if, you know like i want to tell you a story, how can I do that? Or I want to tell you an idea is a good way of doing that through a narrative or is a, is a good way of doing that without a narrative, you know, like, yeah. And it's like this for me personally, it's a, it's a, maybe you too. It's this constant struggle of like trying to find the usefulness of, of the language and the rules and how that can better your um, sort of communication to other people. And, and, and for me, it's about including other people who feel rejected in those situations. Yeah, maybe this is like including me, for example. Sometimes I feel rejected with that situation. Yeah, <laughs> I said, like my personal thing is just that I had dyslexia and I grew up in like a mostly Spanish speaking town. <laughs> and like I spoke some Spanish, but I did, people spoke Spanish at home and I didn't speak Spanish at home. Like for me, that was like, oh, this is this is what the world is like. It's different than, and I'm, and I think that's the reverse of reality, because I'm like a white, like people on TV were white. But. Yeah, I think it's very interesting, and thanks guys for inviting me to reflect on this. You know, because these boxes that you are mentioning are totally related with what we were talking at the beginning, 
which is neoliberalism and how neoliberalism has inflicted these rules yeah. to everything towards us, right? Yes. Even in art and culture. For me, interesting to reflect on this because I feel more relief when I have these conversations and I have the feedback. And then when I, I don't know, read Joseph Boyce and he talks about how he was rejecting all of this, you know, because he were he was obsessed with this social sculpture concept. And then you see that some artists and some thinkers <laughs> and some people... They just need to go through their thing, you know? Yeah. It's so funny that you're bringing this up because I'm heading a panel on medieval social sculpture in the spring. That's about the question of the way that performance functioned as social sculpture very intentionally in the medieval period. So I've been reading a lot of voice mm. also. <laughs> Chris, I'm going to send you this interview because actually reminds me of to. you. Yeah. He says that when he finally decided to study art, the first teacher was a guy who made him draw muscles, but in a perfect way. And mm-hmm. he felt stuck, right? He felt like, oh my God, I can't do this. You know, like this is too boring for me. So he changed to another teacher that, looks like it was very you know important for him and he was a medieval teacher you know so he has this very unique perspective of art based on medieval concepts that they they write it down oh my god please please share it with me i haven't come across that this book (laughs) it's crazy guys it's very very good discourses conversations is postmodern art and culture cool it's very cool Thanks. We'll put that in the show notes. Cool. The interviews from two named David Hammonds. Yeah, I love him. Awesome. So yeah, no, no, he's awesome. His interview is crazy good. He's just so smart and interesting and just tells it, like, just says the thing that you're like, I wish I could put it in those words. Yes. Exactly. It's like, I want to belong to his band, you know? It's like, yes. please. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of amazing so funny how i feel like we always all three of us have like crossovers and things that we're working on and thinking about i do think a good transition right now is that jacob just shared a little secret drawing with us which is totally related to the project that you're going to be having a book launch for at our gallery next week on wednesday october 12th not the 13th the 12th (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about Secreto, which I think started as this different project and has now crystallized into another artist book? Yeah, Secreto is a project that, if I'm honest, started almost when I was 20. It's crazy, because when I was 20, as I told you, my father passed. And when my father passed, my grandmother said to me that all his stuff were mine. And I found in his desk a letter where he confessed secret, right? And this was like crazy for me because my mother, she didn't knew about it. And I didn't dare to ask to my family from my father's side. And after 10 years, you know, with this going on in my head, I turned into 30 and I was doing this citizen participation projects and I decided that I wanted to find the answer of this through right. the audience. So I started with, and I was for so long thinking how to work with it, secrets because, you know, it's a very, could could be a tacky theme, right? And I said like, okay, no, I, I really wanted to do something simple. And finally I came out with this idea of sharing his secrets 
and asking people if they wanted to read this secret, they had to leave one. Mm -hmm. And this is how all of a sudden the project, I went to live in Barcelona, I started doing it in Barcelona, and in Barcelona I realized that this was universal. Everyone had a secret to tell, and everyone wanted to read a secret of other person, you know? And that's how, guys, I was three years traveling around the world, basically, collecting anonymous secrets with once I was going to make a book afterward. That that that's very interesting for me, in in regard to the uh, relational art or you know citizen participation project. That is, I understood over time that one important factor for people to participate in a very you know like commit way was that you have to offer them something very specific, like offer a specific thing in compensation of their participation. Yeah, it's not hey, just write something here and enjoy, you know? It's like, no, like, I'm committed to you. I'm sharing my father's secret to you. I'm asking you to share your secret, and then I'm going to make a book afterward, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is is very important for the audience, right? It's important also to say that every person who wrote a secret filled a survey. Mm -hmm. So this is my sociological side Mm -hmm. side also, right? Your dad coming out again. (laughs) Dad coming out. And also, I wanted to know why people hide secrets. That was the, that was my my drive, right? Like, why? Why my father hidden this secret for his entire life that basically destroyed his nervous system. And I collected 2,500 secrets written in more than 20 languages. I went to Asia, South America, and Europe. And uh, my hypothesis at that time, when I decided to travel with the project, at the beginning with my money and then I got grants, it was like, for me, I suspect that secrets behave different according to different cultures, right? Mm -hmm. Which was a secret for people in Chile. Mm -hmm. It was not a secret for people in Korea, right? hypothesis that was completely destroyed like how you say that yes it was disproved by the surveys by the research yeah i thought i was sure you know i thought my my hypothesis it's correct but not because basically i think this is what i what i think secret or secrets are related to religion moral and all the religions basically have the same root with differences right The, the like dominant belief system of whichever community or nation that you're going to, they all have similar kind of dominant religions and dominant narratives of the morality, right? So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. What is a secret is basically what people hide is what embarrasses us, right? Which is stealing, feeling close to death. You guys want to say when you read the book. It goes right <laughs> back to the things in Habitar, though. Those really basic human drives, I feel like you're approaching these kind of fundamental human desires from different directions in all of these projects. You know, you said asking people about secrets could be tacky, and I agree, it could be, but it's actually really interesting because you've kind of given everyone who participates an offering of your own vulnerability, and I think that makes the project really engaging and really different from other ways you might have approached asking people for secrets. Yeah, because yeah. you have a, what do they say? A, a horse stake in the, in the game. Yes. <laughs> a horse in the race, a stake in the game. Like you have offered up, look, I'm doing this thing that is not a bullshit thing. And then the other person feels like, oh, okay, then I have to also 
bring not just a bullshit oh you know like i'm ashamed of my hair or whatever you know like like a genuine yeah. a genuine thing right yeah and also as jacob pointed out before i'm always there being so me basically you know which is like i like i love talking to people i love to get close to people you know so i was always there never secret was performed without me i was there explaining people telling people how this started you know so it, it was kind of communal right like all, all the time this idea of conviviality yeah. the main the core of the project right it's like a social reflection and social meditation, yes. In, introspection, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And also it was very meaningful and touching for so many people because what happened to my father happens to so many people. People sometimes hide these secrets forever yeah. and they never dare to tell, you know? And then here you had this space, anonymous space to share a secret and just disclose it forever, you know? Yeah. And also i realized that there was something very meaningful and beautiful that when you write down your secret and then this material which is you know like invisible but very very powerful in your mind turns into an object there is something healed in some way right you can see it in another perspective you can see it as something that is external to you right it's not internal it's external and this i think is a very important thing when you want to do I don't know if it heal a trauma. I'm not thinking that Secreto heal people's traumas about secrets. No. But it can help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It helps yeah. us bring it out into the open and manifest it as like a real thing. And yeah. I think people are so trained to feel so many charged emotions around secrets, including embarrassment, which I think is a key one, right? That keeps, because you're afraid of shame if things come out into the open. So concretizing that thing it's like no longer as scary and ephemeral and in your mind, you know, mm-hmm. just like floating around up in the air, like wondering about the shame of people finding out a secret about you. I'm really excited to see the book because we haven't actually seen the whole book yet. And you're yeah. going to present it to us on the 12th. Yeah. Uh, regarding what you were saying, I just want to say one more thing. It's like there is an example, which is very accurate for this, of a girl who confessed that he was abused, like molested by the boyfriend of her mother mm-hmm. you know, like 15 years before and she finished saying and i never dared to tell this to my mom and now that i remember it i'm gonna tell her today it's like she never dared to tell to her mother mm-hmm. that she was abused for someone in her own house and after writing the secret she understood that it was time to you know like tell that she which yeah. is so important you know, it's like, it's so important. I, I think Secreto could help a little bit some people to understand how to proceed this information. You're making Jacob her. cry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a crier. I cry when <laughs> I'm sad. <laughs> it's okay. You just made me have a bad feeling in the bottom of my stomach, but I won't cry. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's Chris and I in a nutshell. <laughs> no, but I mean it's really moving and powerful. And I think even you just retelling that story to us, we both had like an emotional reaction to it. Well, I think and I think Chris and I are on board for all of this or or I think to reach out to people and let them know that you have had 
an experience makes room for others to come forward and say, I also yeah. had the same experience and I thought I was so alone. And Jacob, yeah, that was, for example, happens also and more than one time, like many times, that for some reason you had there 2,000 secrets to choose. You had, to, you had the possibility to choose one to read, you know, after hang your own. And so many people got the same secret that they were sharing. Not the same, but if, for example, I'm sharing that, I don't know, I was, you know, like abused for, for someone, then the secret that they got to read, it was someone who was abused, you know? So uh-huh. this is what you are saying now, this possibility to feel related to, I mean, to feel connected with someone, you know, with the same... I don't know, like trauma or, or you know, or, or fear yeah. or, you know, like, I don't know, pain. It's beautiful because you feel related to something and you feel like the other person also lived that you are not alone, right? And it's a very beautiful and very, like, magical, in my opinion, because all, at the same time, you don't know the other person yeah. to heal collectively. Yeah, I mean, even in the sense that so like my mom died when I was pretty semi-young in my early 20s, like like you. And I have a friend who's got a couple friends whose parents have recently died. And it's been, nobody ever talked to me about it, but I want to be able to talk to you about it. And I want, or I want to be able to listen. Maybe that's what it is. It's not the same thing, but it's just giving them the opportunity to be like, you know, like one of the questions was like, well, you know, how long did it take you to get over this? And I'm like, I'm not over it. There's no such thing as getting over grief. I mean, I think that that's also... I think think there's a lot of falsities in our uh, cultural narrative about things. And one of them them is this, is that you, exactly, that things are really hard for a little while and then you get over it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But once again, just being able, like, you know, following your sort of Maria Luisa's model of just being sort of open and vulnerable and warm to the experience of other people's experience and giving them a space to do that. By you sharing your secret, you give them permission to share a real secret. Yeah, secret and the, the book, Chris, because you, you said like, yeah, we have not seen it, been able to see the book yet. The book, I think is like the first paragraph. I start saying that mm-hmm. introduction, this is the result of my father mourning, like, like my father of grieving your your dad, grieving. yeah, yeah. And then when I read that, I didn't I didn't change it because I I, I mean the book took four years to be created. Four years. It was two thousand secrets. Like first of all, we had to translate the thing, you know. So whatever. And I decided to don't change anything of what I had written because you know like I was that person. But then and I said when I read it, I said like no, this is not the result of my father. You know like how you say it's not it's not mourning when someone that. Da- and you are doing this process of trying to... We always talk about that as like unpacking things, but there isn't a great word in English for the process of like coming to terms with the life of someone that is now gone. Um, yeah. Because mourning doesn't really accurately capture that, right? And no, grieving doesn't capture so. it either. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know if Jacob says, or there is some pains that you never come over to. I never gonna come over from my father's death. I, I, I just know that, you know? It's too big. So I read that it was like, no, it's not. But it's a it's a it's a intent. 
right? Yes. It's a, it's a step forward in yes. this process. To me, it sounds like you're describing like coming to live with rather than fighting against yeah. him, you know? And uh, that that's a that's the process and it's a lifelong process. <laughs> and yeah, now we are gonna see it in Bill's project, the book. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes. Tell us also give us the information about it. So it's also gonna be at Printed Matters at the Print Matters show. Oh, and or... I also wanted to ask you about yeah. Naranja, the um editors too. Well, Naranja, I mean when I when I came back to Chile for years in two thousand nineteen I said, okay, I'm going to make this book. I have to make this book and I want to do it in Chile, you know, but I want someone who, yes. or editor that be related to the artist book, you know, like concept and also who have an approach with, you know, like the United States and, you know, like universal, you right. know, like right. a, a approach because it's important for me and for my career. Secret is a, you know, transnational project. And I, you know, like found uh, out these guys which uh, are, the most professional people and I love them so much. They they work in Chile, but yeah, the market that they reach is a uh, you know the United States and mostly the United States, but also some some things. In- well, I showed them the Secreto project. They loved it and they said, okay, let's do it. At the beginning, we st- we thought in this book like that ten book size, big with the two thousand secrets, right. you know. And then the pandemic hit. When we talk about the book again after pandemic it was like okay let's embrace something more simple humble you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah. and, and we decided to do the book that you are gonna see yeah because and, tashin books can feel inaccessible too because inaccessible because of yeah. the price first of exactly all. Mm-hmm. and th- then because naranja said to me maybe secreto maria luisa is a book that has so many editions you know it's not just one edition of the book yeah. because there's so many roots of this project that you can take as the you know like the, oh, the so exciting they, you know what i mean it's like the sociological part you know like the the the, the surveys they were you know i have all the data that is insinuated in the book but this is another project you know what i imagine maria luisa which is also the same thing i imagine for uh chris's work in the future is one of those little boxes that you have all these different volumes of things that you've made and you're like this is the overall project but there's seven different types of books or projects in there but they all relate to each other i love that they have trilogies and stuff they come in a in a little like a box set yeah yeah and again we're talking about time right because why we have to have one result this project has to finish in two years you know and then it's over right it can be a life time project Mm -hmm. right you're different at at all different points in your life and you probably have a different point of view about that same idea exactly and then well naranja was amazing also because for these crazy reasons in life we were supposed to do secreto uh, book as the first one together and we did demanda publica that you also are related to first because it was like we needed to do it mm-hmm. immediately mm-hmm. and so demanda got... publica is an amazing project too you should yeah. just describe it briefly for people <laughs> we made that book first right Good. and it was amazing because we got more connected and we understood how to work together you mm-hmm. know and yeah and it's yeah. a different yeah, project, yeah. But... i didn't realize it was the same people yeah that's yeah. what i want to say the same people and also 
they love uh, the book Avatar that they made with you guys, and they decided to put in their collection the book Avatar. So they are representing the book also, right? Okay. And they read. They have this audience of universities in the the U.S., you know, and not collectors. It's not collectors. It's more universities that are, you know, like archives that are into yeah. this type of books, which is cool. Also, could you just tell people what Demanda Publica was? Yeah, it was born from a project that I did in 2019, mm -hmm. October 20, I started in October 25th because we had this social upheaval in Chile, crazy one. And I was in Chile at that time, and I decided that I really needed to understand why all of a sudden my people were going to take the streets, you know, for so long and with a lot of energy. What was the reason? I wanted to know the real reasons, right? Like, because I was watching the news, and the news says, oh, people are, are want this, people want that. But it was like, okay, I want to really know what people will want, right? And like each individual person and i went for four months to you know like the manifestations and protests all around santiago uh, and i collect i asked people to write down in you know like sketchbooks one demand what thing that was driving them to go there you know mm -hmm, to the protest and, and mm -hmm. take the streets when taking the streets in chile quite dangerous people were losing their eyes right like it wasn't nice ah well and again my commitment to what i offered to them was that at the end of my you know collection or gathering i don't know i was going to deliver this in the format of a book in the government palace addressed to the president and um i collected 1,800 demands, all of them with the fingerprint as signature, you know, in every wow. plate. Uh -huh. And Naranja said to me, okay, we are going to edit this book. It's a three volumes book. It was a big job. It's a super simple one. We just scan all the demands. I, intro I create the introduction and then someone made the prologue. And I also data, I, I create data, you know, like 65%, for example, demands, demands are related to education, you know, like zero plus one, uh, point one to culture things, whatever. And I, I send it to La Moneda. La Moneda is the government palace addressed to Sebastián Piñera, who is the president, who was the president at that time. And yeah, and the book now, that book, if someone is into it or want to see it, you can see it in, in the archive, uh, artist book archive in a MoMA library. So it's just, you know, you go to MoMA library page and then you type the Manda Publica and you can, which is cool because it's a very heavy book. So it's impossible to set. Yes. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yes. It's book. the Tashin version of the it's idea. The Tashin version. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we didn't say, this is very important for me. It's a non-profit book. So, because I didn't want, it's a political issue, right? right. I, I was not going to, I didn't want to sell people demands, right? right? It's like, no way. And it's not the same with Secret, because with Secret, I always told people that I was going to create a book, you know, and it was going to be sell and blah, 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 right? Yeah. So the way we sold, we sold it and to gain something is like when, when institutions buy it, they have to buy two, two copies, mm -hmm. which is six volumes. 
and donate one to our institution in Chile. That's oh, awesome. Cool. Yeah. And this yeah. is what Jacob meant earlier about, you know, and what I meant earlier, too, about, you know, making institutions chase you and meet your demands rather than trying to work with making institutions want your work. You know, like, yeah. of course, MoMA yeah. wants to own this and have it in their library. And it's an yeah. important work. And you're kind of being open and like trying to create community. And that's actually drawing institutions to you, I think, like in a very real way. Not that you're not yeah. doing work, too, of like outreach and whatever, but. But also it's doing a it's sort of a dare. It's like a, it's like, well, how much do you believe in this project that I'm doing? Because there's, you know then buy two sets. One set goes to a place in Chile. So the people who are, you know, most impacted by this book have accessibility to it. Exactly. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because of money or because our trauma in Chile doesn't allow us to want these things, but more institutions in the United States have been into this book than institutions in Chile. And it's not expensive book. It's just $200 in the two volumes. You know, it's not, it's not really about money. Mm -hmm. I think for some reason here, this happens in Chile. It's our thing, right? But for some reason, we have more people here, like institutions here buying the book than in Chile. But well, it's cool because this is the way to put them in Chile anyway, you know? Yeah. 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 But I think also yeah. sometimes things that are far away from us are, are easier for us to see or, or to, to, to see the value in. So, okay. um, Mar Maria Luisa, will you just tell everyone where they can publicly come after the Field Projects book launch? Then on the 14th, there's the Printed Matter, right? Printed Matter, a book at runs from 13 Thursday to Sunday. So next week, mm -hmm. Thursday to Sunday. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then they're going to have a, a kind of printed matter lounge, which is just in the booth of the editors of Secreto on Saturday. But I really encourage people to go to our lounge because it's going to be more familiar and more focused, you know, and more you know, intimate than the one where we are supposed to sign the books. And that yes, oh, yes. So okay. come to field projects where you can actually hang out and talk to Maria exactly. Luisa. <laughs> exactly. And also see the book. Maybe they are going to be able to see Avatar book too. Yeah. But the printed matter book at first is quite nice, right? It's like a very it fun is. thing to do. Yes. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Maria Luisa. I mean, this has been an awesome conversation. We really appreciate it and are grateful that you want to do the book launch with us. We're excited. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, guys. And I'm so happy that we've met and we've become friends. <laughs> yeah. It's a great conversation. Thank you very much. Do we want to scream field pod? <laughs> you do the one, two, three, so you know what we're okay. doing. Okay. One, two, three. Field pod. <laughs> <laughs> it never works. It never it works. never works on <laughs> Zoom specifically. Okay. Maria, thank you. Love you're, you guys. You're thank so you great. Very much. Thanks too, for talking with us. Super, super, super great conversation.
Jacob, just one more question. These two hours that you have in your background is one is a quarter six and the other is three. What is that? What's the other place? That's actually a um, bootleg of Felix Gonzalez Torres's Perfect Lovers, or Untitled Perfect Lovers. It's drawn on your fridge. Oh, Do you see that? There's two doubles. There's one on the fridge that's drawing, and then there's one above. This is the the real. This is the real fake thing, and this is a representation or a signifier. A simulacrum. Oh, a simulacrum! (laughs) It's been so long. Sorry, sorry, continue. Yeah, it's a similar macro. <laughs> yeah. So when I saw that piece... I love that I, piece. That's I how, love it. That's how I connected to it, was I was like, something as simple as going to, you know, uh, Walgreens, or for me it was the dollar store, and putting two clocks next to each other talks about how a relationship can fall apart and come back together, or how things are constantly changing and you'll never be able to like stop worrying about it or about like you know like it's just it's called the perfect lovers and it's like i don't know for me it was about them falling apart and going away from each other and then coming back together i always think it's about death but because all of his work was i mean he was dying of aids and he was like yeah i'm I'm very young right yes very very i think he was also really good looking too that's another thing so yeah so yeah for me like that that's what art is a lot about is just this kind of like, hey, go down and buy two clocks and then like watch them move away from each other and come back together. And that that's like, that can be a metaphor for your relationships or your life or like, you know, like that's what art can be is $4 clocks. I love that what you what you thought that is a very democratic work also because you can just buy it on the, you know, store. I mean, that's what I kind of took a lot from his work was he made these like contracts with these chocolate and gum places to have these forever piles of candy that you could take one piece from as somebody who, who visits the gallery, like, or his just like simple lights that would, you know, you can turn a light off or turn a light on. And I think he talked about like how quickly a life can, can go out without, you know, with a simple gesture and you're not ready for it. Or I found his work really moving. But I'm going to go for my two clocks soon. All right. You cool. should, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably all, right. all have them. <laughs> yeah. After this, I think I'm going to get my one. Well, what's really funny is that the, um, I took a picture of that when I first moved in here. The One of the curators of his foundation contacted me and was, and in a nice, fun way, was just like all, oh, that's, you know, that's a beautiful piece. I'm glad that you have it above your stove. And I was like, yes, and let me know if you ever need to borrow it because I, you know, I can, I can lend it to you if you need, you know. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, and they were, they were very fun, you know, like they were very funny in that. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>